to turn in our Bibles to Matthew 22. That's the passage we're going to be studying this morning. Matthew chapter 22. Sorry, that was on microphone. I keep crying during hymns. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have saved us through the blood of your very precious son. We thank you that every one of our sins was on that cross and your son died under the wrath and judgment and punishment of our sins, our sins, what we've done. Thank you that they're cleansed and washed away to be remembered no more. Thank you, Father, that Jesus, your son, rose again from the dead, that death, death couldn't hold him. Thank you that when we die, we will go to heaven and be with him. We will go to paradise. We will go to that paradise of rest that we just sang about, that we will be absent from this body, but we will be present with the Lord, and that we will be with him and see him and fellowship with him. <coughs> And yet we also anticipate, as we just sang, a, a yet more glorious day. A day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes through the clouds and by his mighty voice calls all of us out of the grave and our bodies will rise up, be reunited to our souls and we will fellowship on a new heavens and new earth with you forever and ever. And we will stream in with the countless hosts singing your praises. Father, all of these things are true, and they are ours because of grace, because of your great love, because of love we don't deserve. And so much of that singing on that final day will be a song of praise and amazement at your grace, an amazement why us. And then we'll begin an eternity of living for you without any stain of sin, without any fear of death, without any evil temptations. We can't even envision or imagine what it will be like to be in paradise and in eternity with you, glorified as sons and daughters of the living God. Help us as we study your word now, we pray. Teach us from the lips of Jesus, we ask, in this book of Matthew. We pray this in your precious name. It's hard to love mean people. Mean people. You don't like mean people. I know you don't. I don't like mean people. You know why? Because mean people are mean. They're mean. And they try to, they do mean things. They try to humiliate you or they, they make fun of you. And actually, we're going to see some mean people. I, I have to admit, we're going to meet some people in the Bible that I don't like, okay? So uh, I'll try to, I'll try to be, be, uh, be somewhat civil, but we're going to meet some mean people today. And Jesus, though, is going to take this as an opportunity. We're in this testing passage where the Pharisees have come and they've tested him about uh, paying taxes. And now he's being tested again uh, this time as well. And what we're going to look at, really, Jesus is going to organize all of our thoughts today because we're going to look at them under two headings. Look at verse 29. He says, you're mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And Jesus is actually going to then discuss the power of God and then the scriptures. But so here are the two points today. We're going to look at the power of God and we're going to look at the authority of the scriptures. Because that's really the key in what this passage is all about. So let's look at the context of this passage. Look at verse 23. It says, the same day the Sadducees, the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Well, there is actually not much known about the Sadducees, to be honest with you, uh, in history. Um, we do know that there were three branches of Judaism in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were one, the Sadducees were another, and the Essenes were the third. Now, we know a lot about the Pharisees because they appear a lot in Scripture. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, if you could kind of put them in your framework today, they're the more conservative. They're, they tend to be legalistic a little bit. You could put very conservative, almost fundamentalist type people under them. That's the Pharisees. The Essenes, on the other hand, never appear in the Bible. 
which is interesting, but the Essenes we know existed uh, from history, Josephus tells us that, and also we discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you could really, if, to get the Essenes in your mind, they're monastic. They actually, they actually left society and lived out in these colonies out in the wilderness. Their view of, of their faith was to separate completely from Rome. It, it, the Amish would have something of that you know, idea of let's just completely separate from the dominant culture around us. So that leaves us the Sadducees, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees could really be described today in this kind of language as theological liberals or progressives. Uh, by that I mean theological liberals are people that claim to have uh, theology, say Christian liberals, they, they claim to have a theology, theological liberals, but they deny many of the truths of that theology, and, uh, including, say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were like that. They denied the resurrection. And uh, so look at verse 23. It says, the same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him. They even were more than that. In Acts chapter 23 and verse 8, it says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor and no angel, which, by the way, remember that because Jesus is going to bring up angels here too, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. And so the Sadducees were really people that took up the Greek philosophy, one of the Greek philosophies that was present during that, that day and age, uh, that basically said that live for today, live for now, because once you die, it's all over. So kids, I want to help you remember the Sadducees. Uh, just remember them as you're studying who they were and what they were. The Sadducees believed that when you died and you, you were buried, it was over. Your life was over. There was no hope. There was no heaven. There was no nothing after that. So they were sad, you see. I get it? Dad joke. Sad, you see. And so they were Sadducees. You got it, Micaiah. Good. All right. So that, that's how you can remember them. And so you say, well, what did they have to do with religion then? Well, they do what all theological liberals do. They don't really have any – their religion is vacuous. And so they, they, they take up religion, religious stuff. Uh, uh, the outward trappings of religion and power. Those are the two things that they, that they take up. And that's what these two these were. Sadducees were people who, who played up the religion of it. They, they were the priests. They liked to have the robes. They liked to have all this. And they, they dominated around the temple. They liked, they liked having the temple and control of the temple. And in fact, once the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees pretty much just went away and there were no Sadducees uh, left after that. But that's all they had. But they were also mean. They were also mean, and by, being, by saying that is they come to Jesus and they test him. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they come up with what they claim actually happened, but most people, including everybody, I believe, that listened to them when they first said this, knew that this was just a lie. They were just saying this, but notice what they say. They said they come up to him and they're testing Jesus about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're going to disprove the resurrection uh, and in Jesus's to Jesus's teaching. And it says this saying in verse 24, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies and has no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 25. That, those are called what's called the Leverite Laws. The Leverite Laws comes from the Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. And so the idea was, and this, this was way before Moses. Uh, the Torah uh, uh, sanctifies this in some ways because of the land promises. And so basically what happened is if, if, if a brother uh, marries a wife, if a man marries a wife and, and, and he it does not have children, therefore he would lose his inheritance in the promised land his brother was to marry that wife and then produce children, and then those children would have that promised land uh, inheritance. That is what was actually taught. That is that was an ancient uh, thing. And so, um, but nevertheless, in Jesus's day, 
we know for a fact that the Leverite laws were never really enforced at all. This never took place. And so the Sadducees are kind of just pulling something out. There, there would be like people today saying, oh, so you believe in creation. Well, what about dinosaurs, okay? Uh, in order to try to humiliate you a little bit about that. Or, or you believe in this. Well, well then make it, make it sound really, really foolish. That's what they're doing now because what they say is, teacher, we know a man and he died and he had no children and so his brother married his wife and then he died and they had no children and then the next brother and he died and had no children and the next brother and this poor woman had to marry seven of these brothers and then finally exhausted and frustrated she died okay this is like a sick story okay it's like you got to be kidding me right and so this poor woman died and then they asked to humiliate jesus and humiliate anybody who believes in the resurrection what happens now when the resurrection happens, uh, uh, Mr. Rabbi Jesus? What happens then? Whose wife will she be? Or in the final day, is there just going to be a big fight over this woman and everything like that? Well, I'm going to tell you something. The final day, she don't want to have nothing to do with these brothers uh, anyway. And so, but anyway, that's, that's what they're saying. And so this is, this is what they're saying. Nevertheless, they do raise an issue that we think about a little bit. Like, what does happen in the resurrection? Like, let's not take this, these seven, I guess they're all infertile, seven infertile brothers and this woman, uh, and let's take, um, like, a Christian couple, a Christian couple who are married and say they marry and they have this wonderful relationship for 15, 20, 20 years, and one of them dies. And then five years later, the living spouse remarries, to another godly dear Christian man or woman and and has another 20 or 30 years of, of marriage. You know, in, in the resurrection, how does that work? What will that look like? So we actually do have some legitimate questions about that, but we're not as mean as these Sadducees are and, and such. And so that's, that's kind of the context and that's the issue. And now what Jesus is going to answer them, and he says that in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. And the word here, that, I would have translated that word differently because it actually is the word planao. It's a, it's a, and, and the word planao comes actually from the word, it's where we get our word planet, believe it or not. And planet was a wandering star. That's what they called because the stars all moved together. You know, if you have the big, di the, the, you know, the, the big dipper and those kind of things, those, those, all the stars, because the earth is rotating, move together. Planets are on their own rotation and they move around. And so the word planet actually means a wandering star, a wanderer. And then the word took on the idea of wandering into air, wandering into mistake, but it also took on the, the thing of being somebody who was being deceived. And so Jesus is actually using a pretty strong word here. He says, you are mistaken, but more than you made a little mistake. It's more like you are in error. Some of your Bibles translate it like that. You are actually deceived. You're wrong here. You're dead wrong here is really what Jesus is saying. Why? Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You're dead wrong because you don't understand two things. And then what he does is he actually launches, first of all, into the power of God. And he says this, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, obviously, he says there is a resurrection. Now, let's back up for a second. There was an idea. The idea in Judaism was very common, except for these Sadducees. That's why they're so sad, you see, is because they didn't hold to the resurrection. But, for instance, in John eleven twenty four, when Martha came after her, her, her brother Lazarus died, it says, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That was general Judaism's view because of the Old Testament scripture. And, uh, and yet, so they understood that there was going to be a resurrection at the end of the day. Everybody was going to rise up. They believed that. Jesus taught that. But then there's always questions surrounding that. What's that going to be like? What will our bodies be like? How can if we're in the grave and we're molded or rotted or the worms ate us? And then how could we be raised up from again? What if we're dust, you know? Uh, and what if, we're, what if we die out there? Nobody sees us. And, and then uh, the, the, the vultures eat our flesh. Then they fly away. And then our bones are out there. And then the, the sun bakes them. And then that becomes dust. And then the wind blows and blows me to the, to the four corners of the earth. 
So there's questions about that. Paul addresses some of those in 1 Corinthians 15, 35. He says this, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So we generally have these questions. And of course, one of such question is, will we even know each other? And then how would husbands and wives relate to one another in that, in that day? And, that, and that's the, the issue that is coming up. Well, first of all, let me, as we try to address this, let me just say this. We actually don't have a ton of information about heaven or the new heavens and new earth. We have a lot of imagery that's painting that helps us as we try to vision, envision this and, and, and put this together. Certain Eden is one of them. Eden is this idea, you know, the, the, the Garden of Eden as it existed, the Paradise of Eden, uh, sort of is shown, it comes up again at the end of the book of Revelation in the new heavens and new earth. It will be an Eden-like place. And then, of course, we have, we have uh, other examples of people who do recognize one another. Who have been raised up. And certainly the, the biggest example of this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Where Elijah and Moses appear. And they know each other. And they know Jesus. And, and they're relating to one another and such like that. So they recognize each other. And the Bible gives us comfort that if our loved ones die. And they went to heaven before Jesus returned. This was an issue people had. Uh, will they be? Yeah, yeah. Be comforted. They're, they're there. And you, you will in, in that sense see them again. And yet still, a lot of what of, of the Bible speaks about heaven and, 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 and what is coming is so incredibly marvelous that it's actually difficult to describe. And I think that's why we get very little description of it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about himself in kind of the third person, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says this, For I, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard, now look at this, inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. I don't know what, how you would say that today, but you say, man, I saw stuff I can't even talk to you about. I saw stuff that was so amazing, I, I, it wouldn't, God wouldn't even want me to tell you. It's just, it's, it's just, it's so incredibly mind-blowing. That, I think, is what is being said here. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, in, in a different context, but still the, the verse has the same kind of meaning. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard. In other words, we can't connect with what we have here with what's there. Nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. John Calvin said the Sadducees must have been out of their minds he said, to make the mistake of measuring the glory of the life of heaven by present standards. And I think he's right there. So what is heaven going to be like? What is the new heavens and new earth going to be like? What are the resurrected bodies going to be like in the resurrection? Well, it's going to be different. And Jesus is saying we will not marry or be given in marriage. Okay. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. They are not going to be married or given in marriage. There is not going to be the need for reproduction because in the human race where we live now, humans live and die, born, live and die, born, live and die. And we need new generations to continue the human race going on. And it's not going to be like that in heaven because we are going to be eternal. We are going to have eternal resurrected bodies. And it's going to be fundamentally different there than it is here. Not only think about marriage and, and sexual reproduction and things like that, but think about even other things. There's no evidence whatsoever that we're going to sleep in heaven. There's no evidence whatsoever that we're going to need to eat for sustenance. There's no evidence whatsoever that we're going to need to breathe oxygen in order to stay alive. We are going to have eternal bodies. There's no evidence of that. And so these, but these eternal physical bodies are different than what they are now. Jesus is, is the same. It's the exact same body that went on the cross and in the tomb and rose up from the dead is now glorified in heaven and has been sitting upon the throne for over, over 2,000 years now. Jesus is there. He didn't have to eat, keep eating and eating to stay alive while he's there. He didn't, he didn't get nodding off while he's our great high priest and falling asleep and have to take naps. He didn't need those kinds. Of, he doesn't need exercise to stay in shape. All right. 
Uh, it's going to be physiologically very, very different. It's going to look and feel different. That's what Jesus in Luke chapter 20, uh, Luke kind of gives us a little bit more how Jesus talks about this. He says, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. We're going to be like angels, he said. All aflame for God. All alive to God. All in service to God. Worshiping God. Glorifying God. And that's going to be our primary focus. The primary focus of who we are and what he is, what we are to him. We're going to be alive in him. Now, does that mean that we won't have a unique connection to friends, to family, or to even spouse. I do think we will. In the 1700s, early 1700s, one of the greatest pastors, theologians, preachers, named Jonathan Edwards, was asked to be the president of Princeton University. And so he, moved, he went to Princeton early without his wife, and uh, went with his daughters and that to set up the home. And then his wife was going to come from uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, down to, to be with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, smallpox was, was the, a, a big thing at the time. And so they were starting to do smallpox vaccinations, smallpox immunizations. And they gave Jonathan Edwards a smallpox immunization. And, uh, and he contracted the disease to such an extent that he died from it. He died from from it, and so he was. He was miles and miles in colonial New England. He's miles and miles away from his wife, and so he 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 dictates to his one daughter a message to his second daughter, who's going to go to tell Sarah, his wife. And this is what Edwards dictated. He said, "Dear Lucy, it seems to me that the to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you." Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. I believe there's something very true about that. I was worshiping this morning. I was caught up in the songs. You guys did a great job in the praise team. I loved those songs. I was caught up in the songs. I had tears in my eyes. I was, I was in heaven with Christ. I was worshiping him as it were. And my wife was sitting, standing right next to me, and she was in song. And I can always tell in the corner of my eye when she's doing this, she's crying. She's raising her hand. And occasionally our elbows would, would bump. But our relating as husband, and, and I was, I'm, I'm, I'm happy she's here. But our relationship at that point, besides a casual elbow bump occasionally, is directed outside of ourselves toward Christ. And I think that that's a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like, what the glory of God and being with Christ and, and being like angels in heaven, there's going to be a preoccupation, as it were, that, that is consuming in a delightful, glorious way of God himself. And delighting in God and knowing God and fellowshipping with God and seeing Christ and being with Christ and being overwhelmed by grace and serving and worshiping and doing whatever. And relating and communing in a way that was, is, is hard to even grasp and understand how wonderful it's going to be. But it's going to be wonderful. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. That's all that we can say about a passage like this. But then he goes on to say this. Look at verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, of the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Luke, Luke puts it like this in Luke 20, 38. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus now quotes God as he's speaking to Moses uh, before the burning bush. And he says, 
hundreds of hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God. I am the God. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, Sadducees, listen, you're not reading your Bible clearly enough. Because he is not saying, I am the God of worm-filled corpses. I am the God in my kingdom are all dust-filled tombs of dead people who have been died for hundreds of years. I am such a great God. That would be a nothing God. Calvin says, no one can be father without children, nor a king without subjects. Hence, God cannot properly be called Lord except of the living. God spoke to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, and Abraham is alive. I am the God of Isaac, Isaac is alive. I am a God of Jacob, Jacob is alive. And I am their God, and I am going to fulfill my promises to them. And they have a future. A yet more glorious day is coming for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their souls have been with me for centuries and centuries, God said to Moses. But I'm going to give them all of the promises. And the Bible tells us that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were looking forward to the promises. They were looking for a kingdom whose builder, a city whose builder and maker is God. They were looking for an eternal land. Paul says that Abraham was promised that he would be heir of the world. They were looking toward a new heavens and a new earth. And God says, I am their God. I am the God of the living. And I am such a God because of my unchangeable power and greatness and majesty and they they have a future they have a future in me that's what that's what jesus is saying to these sadducees that's what god is saying that's the power of god god can raise us all up from the dead he can do it jesus says these words and i read these words oftentimes at graveside ceremonies uh, services because i think they're so powerful jesus said in john 5 that i don't have this on the screen so don't don't panic guys it says this i love when jesus starts off by saying this do not marvel at this this is jesus saying i'm about to tell you something that's going to blow your mind calm down i'm just going to prepare you get ready it's coming get ready do not marvel at this wait for it wait for it for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, his voice, the son of man's voice, and come forth. One day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come through the skies. He is going to come with the glory of all of the angels. He's going to come bringing the souls of those who have gone before us. He is going to come in that beautiful royal entourage. And then his word is going to say, rise up, rise up the dead. And the souls, our souls will be reunited to our bodies. All will rise up and stand before him as the great king and judge. And Jesus says, don't marvel at this, but don't doubt it either. Because I am God and I have that kind of power. So that's the power of God. We're going to return to that in a little bit. But I want you to look back, uh, look, look back in these verses because Jesus also talks about the scriptures. And notice what he says here. First of all, he says in verse 29, you are deceived, you are mistaken, you are dead wrong, not knowing the scriptures. And then look at verse 31, because this passage in many ways is, is just as much about the Bible as it's about the resurrection. Notice what he says then in verse 31. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Stop. Have you not read? You're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures. You have got a problem here, guys, and you're dead wrong because you don't read the Bible. That's what he's saying. And that was very common for Jesus to say that. You're in the book of Matthew. Look with me to Matthew chapter 12. Just turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse, 30, uh, verse 3. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 3. Jesus is being questioned of why he's eating, why his disciples are plucking grains of, uh, heads of grains on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, oh, we've got a Sabbath controversy here. Verse 3, have you not read? What David did when he was hungry. Look at verse 5. Have you not read in the law that the Sabbath of the Sabbath, the priests and the law profane the Sabbath? <clears throat> you want to talk about Sabbath? Well, first of all, what's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? Let's consult the scriptures. Have you not read? Look at chapter 19 and verse 4. Chapter 19 and verse 4. This question is divorce. Divorce. And Jesus says the first words that come out of his mouth. Verse 4, have you not read? Have you not read 
that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. He's, re he's returning to creation. He's quoting the book of Genesis. Look at chapter 21 and verse 16. The young children were singing Hosanna to the son of David. And people are saying, did you not, do you not hear what he's saying? And Jesus answers again, verse 16, yes. Have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8. Look at four, verse 42 of the same chapter. Jesus says this. Have you never read in the scriptures? And now he quotes Psalm 118 to prove a point. And now, if you look down at verse, where our verse that we have before us, chapter 22, Jesus says, you, concerning, verse 31, but concerning the resurrection, have you not read? Then notice what he says next. <clears throat> what was spoken to you by God saying, and then he quotes God quoting uh, the, the God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. Now, again, look back on verse 31. Have you not read? And then notice what else he says. What was spoken to you by God. You see, for Jesus, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And we're to read the words that God speaks to. And then look at this. To you. Look at the phrase. Have you not read what was spoken to you? By God saying, God will speak to you if you read his word. What the Bible says, God says. Jesus, this is Jesus' view of the Bible. What the Bible says, God says. Jesus believed that the Bible was the word of God. Jesus believed that because the Bible was the word of God, it had the authority of God. Jesus believed that in the historicity of the Bible, he would talk about creation. He would talk about Adam and Eve. He established his view on marriage based upon Adam and Eve in a literal garden. He would talk about Noah. He would talk about the flood. He would talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would talk about David. He would quote them. He believed that those historical figures actually lived and that they were the Bible was historically accurate and what it was teaching was historically true. He ordered his life after the Bible. He kept the Jewish holidays that he was supposed to keep and when there was a theological controversy or question of truth he simply said what does the Bible say what does the Bible say what does the Bible say Jesus held the same view as it were that was articulated so well by Paul in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 a passage that Bill read but we'll put it up here on the screen and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. Nope, back. Why? Look, the Holy Scriptures can make you wise for salvation. You can learn how to be saved by the Bible. Now the next verse. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed, is, is, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word there means God breathed. All Scripture comes out of God's mouth. It's God's breath. It's God's word. And look at what all Scripture then is able to do and is profitable for doctrine. Do you want to know truth? Do you want to know doctrine? Do you want to know truth from error? Do you want to know what is correct from incorrect? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You get it from the God-breathed Scripture. Therefore, verse 17, Paul says this, that the man of God may be, look at this, complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. If the man of God has this, he's complete. He's got everything he needs. He doesn't need psychology. He doesn't need science. He doesn't need psychotherapy studies. He doesn't need the social scientists. He doesn't need the, the uh, philosopher's thoughts and opinions. He doesn't need business market managing techniques. He's got everything he needs right here. That's what the scriptures are about. In, first P in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, and this is what the scriptures are, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible is. It's the Holy Spirit moving men to write down God's thoughts and God's truth. Jesus actually quotes this. Look in your Bibles to the end of chapter 22 of Matthew. We're just jumping ahead a little bit here. I love the end of this 
questioning testing session. We've got another question that's going to be tested because Jesus starts asking questions. Then, then it gets a little bit heavy. So Jesus asked them a question. Whose son is David's son and why is he called David's Lord? But look at verse 43. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, and now he quotes the book of Psalms. And again, Jesus thought that David wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words which prove the Messiah, uh, the, who the Messiah actually is. Jesus felt that the Bible was the word of God. In fact, he so strongly felt that. In John 10, verse 35, he said this, and I can't go into the context of this. I don't have time. I just want you to listen to Jesus' words. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and listen to what Jesus said next. This, that wasn't parenthesis, wasn't put there by Mark. I mean, by John, I mean. <clears throat> the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture will always tell the truth. Now let's go back one more time to our passage. Notice how Jesus proves the resurrection. Verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you not notice something in verse 32? Look at verse 32. Look carefully at verse 32. Jesus is proving the entire resurrection on one two-letter word because it comes out of the word of God. I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. Not I was. Not I will be. I am. Jesus is proving everything based on two, on one word. That's called verbal inspiration. The word of God is, is inspired down to its very words. And Jesus is basing his entire understanding of the resurrection on this. So what do we make of this? What do we make of all of this? Well, let's ask this question. How do we know things about God? How do we know things about God? And the answer to that is... <laughs> We don't unless God reveals them to us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, uh, 1 and 2, it says this. This is how the book of Hebrews begins. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. There's God inspiring the Old Testament, as it were. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. God speaks to us. We, God must reveal himself to us. We don't figure God out. We don't have the capacity to do that. God must reveal himself to us. And God has revealed himself, and people have written it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now we have this book, and this is why Jesus kept saying, have you not read? Have you not read? Because you have the words of God before you. Now, we are what's called, by way of practical application, we, you will hear this phrase used a lot here in this place. A biblical church. We seek to be a biblical church. And in fact, our confession of faith, this is the very first line of our confession of faith. The 1689 chapter 1 says this. It says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's what the Word of God is. And that's what we hold to here. We are in a biblical church. That means we preach the Bible. It means we follow the Bible. It means we seek to live according to God's leading and directing us through the word. It means that, that the Bible becomes the content of our preaching, the content of our teaching, the content of our entire life. And we let biblical principles guide us. Who, to be, who are to be office bearers in the church? The Bible will tell us that. There are elders. There are to be deacons. Who qualifies for that? The Bible will tell us that. These are the list of qualifications. How is a church supposed to function? And whenever discussions happen in this place, in the eldership, amongst the deacons, in any place, any place, any conversation we should have, questions come up. What should be the first thing? Have you not read? What does the Bible teach? What biblical principles should guide us here? In the eldership, that's what we do. What, 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 what's, what do we do? Well, wait, before we even start launching into there with our own human wisdom, let's not do that. Stop. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? And you see, dear friends, in the true Christian churches, there is to be no other authority but the Bible. 
No other authority but God speaking through his word. All scriptures inspired of God that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Where is this principle violated? Well, it's violated in those churches that claim to be Christian, that hold to tradition, human traditions, along with their Bibles. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church. All of a sudden, human traditions, how we do things, begins to take on a life of its own. And then all of a sudden, you have priests in robes again. You never have one priest in a robe serving a Christian church in the New Testament churches. But now you have priests in robes. You have holy water. Where'd that come from? You have saints and, and statues of saints. Where'd that come from? You have Mary being worshipped. Where'd that come from? You have, you have to confess your sins to the priest. Where'd that come from? And then when you do have a sin, you have to read and pray Rosary Beach. Where'd that come from? Or you have icons in which you experience and relate to the communion of saints through these icons and relate to it. Where did that come from? It didn't come from the Bible. You can't read that in the Bible. Jesus would have nothing to do with that. Why? Because the Bible alone is sufficient. And the Bible alone should lead us. How about legalism? The Pharisees then, fundamentalism now. Adding rules, rules, rules. Oh, no, 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 Women can't wear makeup. Oh, no, 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 Men can't have beards. I'm talking about the old fundamentalism that I had to wrestle with. Oh, no, 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 no jeans. Oh, no, 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 no rock and roll music. No, 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 no. Where'd that come from? It's man-made rules. That's not what the Bible teaches that's not what the Bible speaks. Dear friends, but here's where the rubber's really going to meet the road. And here I would like to focus my attention on those of you who are in your 30s and 20s. And maybe 45. The dominant issue in our culture moving ahead, and it is true right now, is the issue of what is right, what is wrong, what are ethics, what is fair, what is true. All of that. Those questions are dominant today. What is justice? What, is the, what are roles or lack of roles? What are our rights that we have? Who can say? Who can say what's right and what's wrong? Can anyone? You see, we live in a secular age. And what secularism is, is what we've done. It, think of a ship. Think of a ship or a boat. It could even be a canoe, for goodness sakes. And it's tied to a dock. Okay, and there's a river, or there's a, or there's the the ocean, and somehow or another that that tie, that mooring came off. Somehow or another it became loose. That boat, and what happens then? That boat begins to drift, and then wind takes it, or current takes it, or something, and before you know it, it's drift. It could be smashed against rock. That's our culture today. Secular culture, secular culture, which has decided we're no longer going to follow the Bible as the Word of God. We're no longer going to follow these, these truths. We are, we have, we're unmoored now, and we're just floating. We're just floating around. And, and, and no one can, can tell anyone anything authoritative. You can't say there is no right and wrong. There is no, there's, it's just whatever people want to do or whatever I decide I want to do or whatever the people in power who got the power make us do. Other than that, there's no anchor. There's no right and wrong unless you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, no, 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 no. God has spoken through his word. What God says, I'm going to follow my Savior. And what the Bible says, God says, I'm going to order and direct my life. What is right? This book tells me. What is wrong? This book tells me. How I should have my sexual ethics? This book tells me. How I should understand myself and who I am? This book tells me. Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? God has not left us anchorless. He's given us an authority. He's given us a, a, a place that we can find these answers. And dear friends, if you decide to live like that, you are going to be ridiculed just like the social, uh, the, the, the intellectual elitist Sadducees ridiculed Jesus. But here, listen to me very carefully here. Jesus didn't back down. In other words, yeah, this guy married and then he died, then she married and he died and there was seven of them. <laughs> what would it be like in the resurrection? Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed. Well, let's not talk about resurrection. Let's talk about loving our neighbors or something. 
Jesus said this. He said, you're crazy wrong. There's a resurrection. God is coming. We'll be like angels in heaven. Jesus didn't back down. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this today because the Sadducees are back. The Sadducees are back, dear friends. In the 1920s and 30s, it was called liberal Christianity. And liberal Christianity didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe the Bible's word of God, but they wanted to keep all the religions. So they just, they wore their collars, they wore their robes, they built these cathedrals and such like that. They were the mainline churches. And where are they at now today? They're dead. It's gone. Mainline churches are nothing. They're shells, empty shells. And then in the 80s and 90s, you have what was called the emergent church. And it was these people who said, yeah, yeah, we, we want to we distance ourselves from evangelicalism. We want to distance ourselves from the Bible. We want to be hip and cool. And today now it's called progressive Christianity. Or it may have some other name like that. Progressive Christianity. But I want to suggest a better name for it. The better name for it is embarrassed Christianity. It's embarrassed Christianity. See, these are people that know that the Bible speaks certain things, that there are certain sexual ethics, that a man should marry a woman, and that they should, they should then, in that context, in that context alone, have sexual relations and have children. The Bible teaches that there is, in fact, something called maleness and something called femaleness, and they can't switch back and forth. And you can't put on a women's bathing suit and then just outswim all the women and win your gold medal and think that you're doing something important and significant. It is absolutely ridiculous what, 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 what they're saying. And, and, and the Bible says that, that men are to have certain roles and women have certain roles. And, and that those aren't to be oppressive. They're not to, they're not to, and yet it's genuine. You can't, you can't run away from it. You can't hide from it because the Bible speaks in those terms. And guess what, dear friends? Progressive Christians are embarrassed by all of that. They're embarrassed by all of that. They want to be hip. They want to be cool. And by the way, and I want to warn you guys, because I saw it with the Emergent Church, and it's happening again today. They are hip and cool. They're some of the hippest, coolest people you'd ever want to be. You want to be like a man. They're like so hip and cool. And they're beyond evangelicalism and beyond all that superstitious stuff about the Bible and beyond patriarchalism and beyond roles in marriage and beyond sexual ethics. And, 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 and yet they want to still maintain Christianity. So instead of what doing what Jesus did, when the intellectual elites were, were trying to ridicule them, Jesus said, no, I ain't going with there with you. I don't care what you say. There's a resurrection. These people are caving. They're caving. And they want us, as, they want to call themselves Christians, but they want to embrace all of the modern ideas and philosophies of the secular age. They want to embrace all the popular verdicts on what is right and wrong now, what is true or not. And they want to talk about being red-letter Christians. We're red-letter Christians. We believe only the words of Jesus. We don't like Paul. He's bad. We believe only the red-letter words of Jesus. And by that they mean love your neighbor, love God, love. That's all we need. I'm thinking, you don't read all the red letters, do you? You don't even read the red letters. If a man looks upon a woman to lust after, he's committed adultery in his heart. There's sexual ethics right there. You guys are not reading the red letters at all. You see, they want to get rid of wrath. They want to get rid of sin. They want to get rid of repentance. They actually do get rid of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus actually died for sinners. They want to get rid of biblical ethics and biblical marriage and biblical family and biblical personhood. They want to get rid of all of that because they're so progressive. But they still want to retain Christianity. I'm drawing a line of sand. You go there, you're no longer a follower of Jesus. Check me out. Check it out on your own. You go there, you're no longer following Jesus. Who said this cannot be broken. Let me suggest in closing a better way. And that's this. The blessings of a biblical life. The blessings of doing things you see, dear friends, when a train is on the tracks, it can go fast. It can, get, can, it can be, take, pick up steam. It can use its power. It can go. But that train gets derailed into a field of mud. That train is going nowhere. I'm going to just tell you by way of closing as a perfect evidence of this is all the blessings that I've seen come in the lives of people who have ordered their, their, their life by the word.
I have seen people in their personal lives just no, no, no happiness and contentment and joy and fulfillment and understanding their personhood and joy in the roles that God has placed them in. On the other hand, I have seen people crash and burn and suffer so much suffering and so much dysfunction. And all you could do is trace it back and say, oh, if they would have only done this God's way instead of their way. I've seen home life where there's happiness and, and joy and, and closeness and love. And even though there are different roles, those are, those are all worked out in such a context of love and mutual submission and care for one another and mutual love. On the other hand, I've seen marriages just dysfunction and fall apart in it because people didn't do it God's way. I've seen relationships and friendships develop and, and, and nurture and grow. And when you do it God's way, do it God's way. We live in the day and age of the expert, which I, I have very mixed feelings about that. But I say, why don't you tap in to the knowledge of the true expert, of the wisdom of God, by following and doing things God's way. I want to read, I want to close by reading to you. If you want to follow along with me, that's fine. Psalm 1. I want to read to you in closing this psalm. But I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the blessed man and to the unblessed man. Just listen. It's a very short psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorn. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's his Bible. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, for they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Do you want to know a blessed life? Follow Jesus in following the word of God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have given us an example of how we're to live our lives. You lived it. We're to follow in your steps. And we thank you, Father, that you have left, not left us alone to wander in the dark, blindfolded, as this culture is doing now. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us a, a, a light. We thank you that you've given us truth. Father, help us, we pray. Help us as this generation continues to grow in ridiculing the word and ridiculing your truth, and ridiculing what you have revealed. Help us, we pray, to follow Jesus, to read our Bibles, to live them out in our lives, and to know the blessing of the godly who meditates on the word day and night. Bless us, we pray. And for those who are here who do not know you, please, we pray, help them not to follow this culture into destruction. Help them to follow you. Bless them, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask.